From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression. I'm Jerry Baker with the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, a new critical phase in the war in Ukraine. On Sunday, it seems as though the Ukrainian military's long-expected counteroffensive against Russian positions in the country may have started with a series of artillery and ground attacks along the line of territory that marks Russia's control in the east of the country. And then on Monday, in the south, a major attack largely destroyed a key strategic dam on the Dnipro River that marks part of the front line between Russian and Ukrainian forces in the south. Ukrainian officials, backed by some U.S. intelligence reports, say the Nova Kakhovka Dam was blown by Russian forces, though Moscow says it was the result of a Ukrainian attack. As well as causing massive damage to homes and settlements in the area, the attack could have important strategic implications. It may impede large-scale Ukrainian military operations as they develop their counteroffensive against Russian positions across the river. But it may also complicate Russia's supply of water to the Crimean Peninsula, the territories it's held since 2015, and also limit Russia's ability to press its assault on the strategically important city of Kherson. So where are we in this war? Could we now be in the early stages of a new crucial phase? Can the Ukrainian offensive succeed? And what does it mean for the continuing US support for Kyiv? Is the new counteroffensive, if that's what it is, a critical measure of the effectiveness of US military assistance? And what should the US do if this counteroffensive fails to break the deadlock? Well, to discuss all this, I'm joined this week by Republican Congressman Mike Waltz. Waltz is a member of the House Committee's Armed Services, Foreign Affairs, and Intelligence. Before joining Congress, he served in the U.S. Army as a Green Beret, completing multiple tours as a Special Forces Officer in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Africa, and he was awarded four Bronze Stars, including two for Valor. He then also worked on defense policy in the Pentagon and the White House. Waltz has already made a name for himself as one of the more hawkish voices in Congress, on dealing with the challenge from China. He's also been a strong supporter, however, of U.S. support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. He was elected to Congress in 2018 to succeed Ron DeSantis in Florida's 6th Congressional District. It was the year, of course, that DeSantis was elected governor of Florida. That, however, didn't stop him from endorsing Donald Trump already for the Republican nomination in the 2024 presidential election. And Congressman Michael Waltz joins me now. Congressman, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Yeah, sure. Happy to be with you. Well, there's a lot to talk about, particularly with regards to Ukraine, and that's where I'll start. We have the news today, and we're recording this, I should say, on Tuesday, of what seems to be the destruction of a key strategic dam in the south of the country, very close to the city of Kherson, the, the Nova Kakhova Dam. There are conflicting reports. The Ukrainians say it was the Russians, which that seems to be the view of U.S. intelligence too, but the Russians claim it was the Ukrainians. You have a lot of access to a lot of information, some of which you can share with us, some of which you can't. What's your sense of what happened here and maybe what the implications of it are for the broader war? Well, without getting into anything classified, it's a bit of a head scratcher in terms of why the Russian would do this. By the analysis that I've been briefed, it would do more harm than good to the Russian side. This dam was a key source of water for Russian-occupied Crimea. It's unclear how it would affect the Russian-occupied nuclear plant at Zaporizhia. That should scare everyone. It would flood out and is flooding out many of the Russian defensive lines on the east side of the Dnieper River. So while it could temporarily halt with the flooded and rising water, that portion of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, even that will be temporary. So again, it just doesn't make sense 
to me and to the analysts that I've talked to about why they being the Russians would do this. So you're not ready to endorse the claim from the Ukrainians that it was definitely a Russian action that did this? Oh, well, again, without getting into exactly what we know and don't know, there is, again, a lot of head scratching on why this would occur. But it wouldn't be the first time, of course, that we've had rather conflicting signals and claims that the Russians have done things that maybe didn't seem in their own interest. We had the episode of the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline last year, which again was initially attributed to Russians by Ukrainians and something endorsed by the US and then seemed a little murky as more reports came out. I mean, I don't know if you have any more information on that, but, but more generally, are we being a little bit too credulous sometimes in heeding the information that we get from one side in this and dismissing the information that we get from the other? Look, if we're at the roulette table and we have to bet on black or red, I would certainly bet on the Russians coming with lies and misinformation. You know, that said, both sides are going to do what's in their interests. You know, we're seeing, for example, reporting of Russian resistance units within Russia that are conducting infrastructure attacks in Volgograd and others, it would not surprise me if those were covert Ukrainian units, right? So both sides are going to provide cover for what they believe they need to do. But at the end of the day, I'll believe the Ukrainians over the Russians all day long. So let's try and get a sense of where we are now in this war. There's been these reports, obviously, in the last couple of days of significant stepping up of Ukrainian artillery and ground force action in the east of the country, in particular in Donetsk, as well as some operations elsewhere. They haven't confirmed, and we probably wouldn't expect them to, after all, secrecy being the key uh, in military operations, but they haven't confirmed. But does this seem to you like the start of this long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russian lines? It does. I think the Ukrainians have done a good job of obscuring the timing of their counteroffensive and the exact objectives of it. We all know it's coming. That has kept the Russians on their back foot. They clearly expended themselves in just a phenomenal way in Bakhmut. But I do believe this is the beginning of the counteroffensive. And the Ukrainians are keenly aware that in order to sustain international support, that they need to show real success here. And so we'll see how it goes. I'm optimistic. I think the units that Western nations primarily the United States, but a number of NATO nations as well have trained the Ukrainian units that we've trained, the new equipment we've provided, and the munitions we've provided are going to see success. What do you think are the main objectives of this counteroffensive, as far as you can tell? I can tell you from meeting with President Zelensky last fall, he was adamant. Look, I pressed him, what does success look like? What can you accept at home politically? You know, at some point, every conflict ends in some sort of diplomatic negotiation. We don't want you going to the table until you're in a position of strength. But in his mind, what does that look like? And he was adamant that he had to have greater access to the Black Sea. The analogy that, that one of his lieutenants used was, you know, right now they only have the port of Odessa. It would kind of like if the United States on the eastern seaboard only had access to the port of Boston. He said that they were starving slowly as a country without access to the trade routes and without being able to export their grain and other agricultural goods. And so I believe you're going to see a strong push to break the Russian land bridge, to get back Mariupol. As far as how far they can get in a very entrenched east is unclear. But I do believe that, that the east bank of Kyrgyzstan, so they can fully reopen that port and getting as far as, as Mariupol will be at the top of their list in terms of objectives. So in terms of the immediate objectives, recovering some of that land in the south on the seaboard there in the south, 
to give themselves better access to the sea, sort of rather than kind of an all-out offensive to push the Russians out of the whole country, that is their immediate priority to get better access to sea lanes. And again, I say to push Russians out from blocking those positions in that part of the country. Yeah, that's right. It's just for their economic viability, you know, going forward in the long run, they have to get those ports back. And, and so I think that'll be top of mind. Um, now, whether you see uh, different types of feints or pushes all along the front line to keep the Russians penned down, to keep the Russians confused, would not surprise me. But just talking to a number of their economic ministers and several of their key business leaders, they are really desperate to get those ports back. And also, I think another key objective will be the nuclear plant in, uh, in Zaporizhia. I mean, at one time responsible for a quarter to a third of powering Ukraine's grid. So that, I believe, will also be top of mind. And what about that eastern Ukraine, that that area of the Donbass that we know, Donetsk and Luhansk? Again, there does seem to be some fierce fighting going on around there. We've talked a lot about Bakhmut. We've seen the battle for Bakhmut going back and forth. You know, that's been largely out of the Ukrainian, the central Ukrainian government's control for some time now with pro-Russian separatist forces there in control. What do you think that if if the medium or the the longer term objective reasonably can be there? Again, is it to push the Russians out? I mean, but they do have, you know, significant populations that are sympathetic to Russia there. What's a likely possible settlement there, or at least a possible conclusion to this conflict? Well, that's a great question. It's one that I continue to ask of the Biden administration. You know, what is acceptable? What is good enough? You know, where does Zelensky and us need to be before we try to drive some type of diplomatic resolution? We're in a bit of a policy quandary here. On the one hand, you want Putin to believe that he can't outlast us, uh, that we'll continue to provide support into the foreseeable future, that he can't just grind this out and wait this out. But on the other hand, the flip side of that is as long as Zelensky believes he has a blank check and that the support will continue well into the future, then why should he go to the negotiating table? And why shouldn't he push for everything that he can get? I can tell you at least what he communicated to the delegation that I was on was that he had to have the Russians fully expelled from Ukraine when we pressed on Crimea specifically, he was a bit more circumspect. So where do I think this will settle? I I don't think we'll have a clear picture until we see how well this offensive goes, whether they use this new training and equipment effectively. I was a former armor officer before I was a special forces officer, and you have to use tanks and armor in the right way for them to be effective on the right types of terrain in mass. And they have to be supported by what we call combined arms warfare, where you are mutually supported by artillery, by infantry. I mean, that's basically what the Russians failed at and why the Ukrainians were so successful in their defense. So we'll see if the Ukrainians can do better on the offense. I believe we'll settle somewhere around the 2014 line. That's just Mike Waltz's prediction. I think anything short of that is completely unacceptable to Zelensky. And beyond that, we start getting to some very interesting territory for Putin and his hold on power and what his red lines are. I want to talk a little bit more about that and the broader sort of strategic questions. But as you say, you have served with distinction in the military and you know a lot more about these issues than most of us, in particular about supply. I'm wondering the enormous amount of military assistance the U.S. has supplied so far and with much more still kind of in the pipeline. What can we expect the Ukrainians to be able to do with that? Not just obviously the U.S., but the Europeans too. For example, I mean, you talked about tanks 
Now, you know, there's been obviously the Europeans have been transferring some of their leopard tanks in particular to the Ukrainians. But as I understand it, it's going to be some time before most of those additional armaments and vehicles are going to be available for offensive operations. Give us a sense of, of how important so far what the U.S. led effort has done and what we can expect from it in the next month, two or three months. According to the latest numbers I have from the Pentagon, the U.S. has provided around $36 billion in military hardware. Most of that is what we call a drawdown authority, where we're literally just transferring from our own stocks, our own warehouses, right over to the Ukrainians. Some of that we are actually buying for them, and then a little bit is kind of longer-term procurement. What is frankly frustrating to me, and I think to many on my side of the aisle in particular, is how much the many European countries have promised but how little they've actually delivered, Uh, despite the fact that the EU and the United States have roughly the same size economies. The numbers I have, the NATO countries together have provided about 19 billion in military assistance, while the United States has provided 36. And I have to tell you, that's not just one upsmanship. In order to, from my standpoint or others, it's a issue of fairness. It's an issue of burden sharing. Many of my constituents look at this war and say, wait a minute, this is literally the largest land war since World War II right on Europe's doorstep. And we have major economies like Germany and France and Italy providing a fraction of, say, what Poland is providing or by percentage of GDP, even of what the Baltic states are providing. And even far less compared to the United States. That's an issue of fairness and it's an issue of interest. And my message to my European counterparts has been, if you want the American taxpayer to continue this support, we need to see you step up and we need to see some dramatic shifts in the levels of military aid that our European allies are provided. And look, I, I think NATO has been one of the most successful alliances, if not the most successful in modern history. But as friends, as allies, we can also have tough conversations. And I am going to introduce a measure, and I believe it's going to have significant support that we're calling dollar for euro, and that our aid needs to be calibrated to European aid when it comes to military support going forward. And, and we just need to see a level set in terms of burden sharing. I don't want to belabor the issue, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. No, but it's an important point. Again, there is a lot of concern, and obviously among your constituents, among a lot of Americans generally, actually both sides think of the political aisle, uh, concern about the scale of the US support, especially given the relative paucity of European support. So would your measure, would it literally kind of mandate US aid to be tied one for one in terms of dollars for European aid? I mean, how, how would it work? That's the intent. I mean, I think I could see it getting a little bit bogged down in exactly how you count that aid, right? Much of this is actually on the value of the equipment. So do you use present-day value for older equipment or do you use replacement value? I mean, we'll work with the administration and the Pentagon to iron that out. But the intent is to drive our European allies to contribute more. The intent for decades now have been to drive our allies to contribute greater percentage of their GDP to their defense budget. By my last count, uh, seven out of the 30 nations are living up to their 2% commitment a decade after making that commitment. That's just unacceptable, particularly when it's one thing when you have distant kind of, you know, over the horizon theoretical conflicts. But when you have the largest land war since World War II right on your doorstep, and we're still seeing kind of equivocating on providing for NATO's common defense from each member nation, Again, that's unacceptable. So that's what 
we would seek to do. We'll either calibrate ours to meet the overall European or uh, ideally the Europeans will step up and contribute more. You've talked about this counteroffensive and what you see as both the immediate and the kind of longer term objectives of what seems to be this Ukrainian counteroffensive right now. It's a hard question, obviously, and it's a hypothetical and a difficult one. But if they don't achieve those objectives in a relatively timely period, and of course, you know, I think we all want them to, we're all pretty well on, on that side here that we want them to succeed. But if they don't, how much pressure does that then place, do you think, on the US in terms of its willingness to continue to support because this counteroffensive was supposed to break this deadlock that we've seen really for the last sort of six or nine months to really create a new kind of dynamic in the war in order to in a sense part i mean obviously the objective is to free ukraine and to liberate ukraine but it's also important i think isn't it to show to the american people that their all this aid that they've been giving ukraine is paying off if somehow that doesn't change the picture and that we still seem to be stuck in a kind of deadlock in three six months time is that the point at which the U.S. has to start maybe leaning harder on Zelensky for some kind of a settlement? Well, look, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there that I think the American people are going to want to see return on their investment. We have certainly seen it in stopping the Russian army. I will continue to make the case that if Putin slices through Ukraine, that he will continue to try to realize his legacy, his dream of reconstituting the old Soviet Union which would pull NATO in, therefore the United States. I continue to make the point to members of my party and my constituents that if you want to keep U.S. soldiers out of this war, the best thing to do is provide the beans and bullets to the Ukrainians who are bravely doing the fighting and dying. But that will be a far more difficult case to make if we're not seeing success despite all of the UAVs, the counter UAVs, the artillery, the tanks, the armored personnel carriers, the stingers, the javelins that we've provided, that would be a far harder course to make and then our case to make. And we're heading into a presidential campaign year where the leading Republican candidates, at least a couple of them, are saying this can't be another endless war like the Middle East wars, and that they are saying that this needs to come to some type of diplomatic conclusion before this escalates out of control, particularly on the nuclear front. And that resonates with a lot of Americans. And the bottom line is well, we need to see success, and it's always easier to make the case to reinforce success than to reinforce a stalemate. And is it part of that conclusion, if you like, again, if we all hope we do get to a satisfactory conclusion, that Ukraine, as is being talked about now, something that's been rejected for a few years, but Ukraine should become a member of NATO, either a formal member of the, the alliance or at least with some kind of stronger connection that it's had. Would you support that? I'd have to look at the terms of it and where Ukraine stands. I mean, the reluctance or the concern going in was that they were living up to a number of NATO standards. And it wasn't just on the military side. It was also on the corruption efforts and on the political and, and governance side of things. So I think I'd have to take a hard look at the roadmap to do that and see where they stand at the end of the day. A major defense partnership, a non-NATO ally that has greater access to our excess defense equipment, foreign military sales, direct commercial sales, particular treatment in terms of export and technologies. I think that'll be very achievable. Full NATO membership, I think we'll have to see. We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Congressman Mike Waltz on the war in Ukraine and the wider challenges the U.S. faces in global security. Stay with us. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. 
If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm talking about the war in Ukraine and other key issues for U.S. global strategy with Congressman Mike Waltz from Florida. Do you worry that we may perhaps, again, again, even as we support Ukraine and want Ukraine to push back against this aggression from Russia, the, the, the special role that Ukraine has in Russia's view of itself, of its relations with Europe and the rest of the world, that the identity to some extent that, that Ukraine is wrapped up within Russia, do you worry that, again, especially if Ukraine were to join NATO or if it were somehow to essentially no longer certainly have the kind of relationship with Russia that it's had for most of the last hundred years, worry that that creates only more hostility in Russia. My colleague, Walter Russell-Mead, has a very good column in the journal today saying this would represent the end of Russian kind of imperial ambitions, which have been a factor of Russian foreign policy for 300 years. Do you think that it represents that larger strategic challenge for Russia that could have big strategic implications for its relations with the West? I do think it would be significant. I think certainly believe you will hear those arguments from foreign policy circles and from both sides of the aisle that this is, it's one thing to aid Zelensky to a position of advantage in terms of any type of negotiation. It's another thing to culturally, historically, really just jam Russia right in the eyes. And that there are many that would argue that goes beyond Putin and his personal and legacy ambitions to Walter Russell Mead's point. Part of it, and where I said we'll have to see where Ukraine stands at the end of this counteroffensive and in the near future, I think a key part of that has always been for Russia access to the Black Sea and Crimea. And do we still see a Russian-occupied Crimea or do we see Ukraine take Crimea back? All of those things I think we'll have to factor in as we chart a course going forward. But I do think and feel strongly that the Biden administration has to more clearly articulate, particularly if there's another major multi-billion dollar supplemental coming before Congress on what success looks like in line with our interests, in line with the West's interests, and what the pathway is to get there. And just saying as long as it takes or blank check I don't think is sufficient. And finally on this, you've been, again, a notable hawk on the challenge from China, demanding, along with many of your colleagues, that the U.S., prepare itself strategically much more effectively for that challenge from China. What do you think of those, some, again, who are very much associated with your view of the world, a kind of a, a strong a defense, who believe that China is the big threat, and who see all this support from Ukraine and this engagement in Ukraine and this focus on Ukraine is essentially being a distraction, that the big challenge is over there in the Pacific, it could come over Taiwan, it could come over some longer-term challenge, and that we are, both in terms of military support and financial support, but also in terms of our kind of strategic focus, we're looking in the wrong place. What's your response to that? Well, look, I want to be clear. I do think the Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat that the United States and the West has faced in modern history. Not only does it have the economic, diplomatic, informational, and increasingly military power to supplant the United States and the West as the leaders of a global coalition that you know <laughs> defends our liberal world order, they completely have the capability to do so, and that should be our number one focus. What I would say to those critics, though, is if Putin is successful in Ukraine and continues to realize his dream of revisionist, revanchist, old Soviet Union, 
that will actually tie down more U.S. forces, more force structure, and more resources in the long run. If we help Ukraine, who's doing the fighting and dying, with the beans and bullets to essentially sideline the Russian military, that should free up force structure for the Indo-Pacific. And I would push, assuming Ukraine is successful in the near to medium term, for a reduction in U.S. force structure. If the Russian military is truly devastated and sidelined, then I think 30 Western European powers, particularly with the addition of Finland and Sweden in NATO, can more than defend itself and free up U.S. assets for the Indo-Pacific. So from a diplomatic and moral standpoint, I think the best thing to do to defend Taiwan is to see Ukraine be successful. And from a hard power standpoint, in order for us to shift the forces necessary to deter the military buildup of the CCP is to see Ukraine be successful. So I think on both fronts, success there actually will lead to longer-term success in the Indo-Pacific. Final question for you, Congressman. It's a, a slight shift of emphasis, but not unrelated. We're into uh, very much into election season. A presidential election is 18 months away. The first primary votes in the Republican contest are not much more than six months away. We've got a whole slew of candidates now for the Republican presidential nomination, several more this week, including former Vice President Mike Prince, Chris Christie, and others. You sit in Congress for the seat that uh, used to be held by Ron DeSantis. You succeeded Ron DeSantis. He's running for president. But you've already endorsed Donald Trump. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us why that is and why you think Donald Trump should be renominated and reelected as president. Sure. I'll tell you on two fronts. One, on a personal professional level, every single time I called President Trump, believe it or not, he sitting in the Oval Office. He either answered or called me back within hours, whether it was hurricane assistance or issues with our military or the shift on China. Not only was he responsive, he delivered for my constituency, which will always be my top priority. Secondly, if you could set aside people's personal opinions of him for just a moment and you just take a moment to consider the policies in just one term, despite everything thrown at him, from securing our border to our economy that was on fire for every single demographic group to the massive reductions in crime to Middle East peace accords, the likes of which would have been multiple Nobel Peace Prizes for any other presidents that were truly transformational. The massive shift on how we deal with the Chinese Communist Party, the taking out Soleimani, the taking out of the leader of ISIS, Baghdadi, the massive reduction of ISIS, which was terrorizing all of Europe and the United States in Syria. I mean, I can keep going down the list. I haven't even talked about veterans reform, tax reform, justice reform, right? And so those policies I want to get back to, and that's what I will always look to, the policy as much as I do the person. Yeah, a lot of people like those policies, but former president continues to insist that the 2020 election was stolen, his behavior after that election and his role in you know, at least contributing, let's say, to the events that led to the assault on the Capitol when you were there in January 6, 2021. All that behavior and all of that refusal to accept the election result, that doesn't worry you? Well, look, I think there were some real concerns about how the election was conducted under the umbrella of uh, COVID. Many states, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, and others have taken measures towards election integrity. I think the midterms just showed we're in a better place than we were. 
to those who say, well, I, I really like that long list of policies. I just want somebody different. I ask them, you know, do you get SpaceX without Elon Musk? Do you get Apple without Steve Jobs? Do you get those policies without a true disruptor that was Donald Trump? So again, I'm going to be focused on my constituency and I'm going to be focused on the wins that I think had a much more prosperous America and a much safer world. Uh, again, in just a few years, and, and I'll take another four years of those and, and another eight years of Ron DeSantis, if that's how it works out. I'll take 12 years of both. How about that? <laughs> I am going to let you go, but you talk about the midterms. A lot of people blame Trump for a lot of the losses in the Senate, particularly in the midterms last year. You don't worry that the, the accusation that Trump is somehow unelectable, that doesn't bother you? Well, I mean, we're certainly not seeing that in polling now. And, you know, I can point to you poll after poll across the board where you know what? People want to go back to where our economy was, where crime was, where the world was 2019. And so I think he's absolutely electable. And on the midterms, you know, look, that was a number of things. That was, I think, a very clever and frankly dishonest way when you look at the leak that happened in our Supreme Court, a very damaging way to bring abortion to the fore. Frankly, the party should have messaged it very differently and addressed it head on. And also, and when I've had these conversations with President Trump, and that early voting and mail-in voting, if done with integrity, can work for us because many rural voters like to do it through the mail, and we can't put all our eggs in one basket of day of voting. I mean, literally, we were within 24 hours of having a hurricane hit southern Florida the day of the vote. So, you know, I think there are some structural reasons that we could have done better in the midterms, and I think we will in 2024. Thank you very much, Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican Congressman from Florida. Thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Happy to be with you. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression. Please join us again next week when I'll have another deep look at a big issue that's shaping our world. In the meantime, have a great week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.